What up, AOTA family? Welcome to Passing Period and All the Above Podcast Extra. My name is Manuel Russin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. And for those of you who might be recent to All the Above, I should go ahead and, and let you know I'm a 19-year classroom teacher vet, I suppose. And uh, I teach social sciences here in the Los Angeles area. And Jeff, it's been a minute since we've had a full episode, and it just struck me that we don't really do our full intros when we do these passing periods, so maybe some folks who have more recently discovered our show don't really know what um, super-duper dope principal leader man Jeffrey Garrett is all about. So why don't you introduce yourself to any new ears, any new listeners that we have out there? Yes, well, my official title is uh, Super Duper Dope Principal Leader Man. Uh, you can find it on my LinkedIn page. Just, uh, <laughs> just Google it. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so my job, explaining what I do for a living, man, well, it's like a paragraph. It's, like, <laughs> it's difficult to explain. The, the easiest way uh, to describe it is uh, once upon a time, uh, when I was a little baby teacher, uh, I got my uh, secondary social studies credential. Uh, in the state of Massachusetts with uh, this guy right here, Dr. Rustin. And I was a high school uh, history teacher, taught world history and uh, U.S. government. I then became a coach and an AP and a principal um, out in New York City. And then eight years ago, I moved to L.A. and I work uh, for a network of schools. I oversee leadership development. So I work with all the principals and APs and teacher leaders. And I have a consultant practice and I work with schools and districts across the country and uh that's the paragraph and hope it made sense and i mean uh, <laughs> that sounds exactly like what a super duper dope principal leader man would do i mean that's pretty I'm, much a hundred percent match right there i've been meaning to update the resume and be like <laughs> you know basically uh, what, what would it be it'd be like uh uh, July 2012 to present, super duper dope principal leader. Exactly. Man. Yes. <laughs> See, now we're getting somewhere. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, folks, welcome to All the Above if you are new ish to our show. And normally we have a video format with super dope guests and, and all kinds of stuff. And in between those video uh, episodes, we drop these passing periods where it's just Jeff and myself um, discussing some headlines and news and education, some stories that maybe didn't make it into our full episodes. And right now we're on a little bit of a hiatus with the full episodes while we adjust to a couple things and uh, we'll get rolling with those again very, very, very soon. All right. So Jeff, it is October now, spooky season, and we are deep into the school year, at least out here on the West Coast. We are, what, two full months into the school year? Wait, more than two months. Well, around two months-ish, yeah. depending on the district, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, man, we rolling, we rolling. How is everything on your side of things? I hear you've been a, a little bit busy this week. Been a little bit busy. Uh, I, I bought a house. I moved into uh, a house one week ago today and moved out officially, like did the cleaning and the last, you know, handover of the keys and the garage door opener uh, at my apartment yesterday. And today, Manuel, October 1st, year of our Lord, 2022, okay, will be the first first of the month that this dude right here has not paid rent to a landlord ever. Uh, well, I mean, ever in the sense that, like, as an adult, yeah, <laughs> I should say. Uh, so, um, so that was kind of a good feeling, and and I'm at that, you know, the beginning 
point of the mortgage where they don't charge you the first payment until like the second month or whatever. Yeah. So this month is going to be the first month I have not I have like zero housing costs. I mean, you know, even though I'm paying the housing costs, but you know, rock with yeah. me here for a minute. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good feeling, man. I got a, you know, a little extra change in the pocket this month. Feeling good about that. Nice. Uh, so, yes. Yes. Landlord less. Like it. Yeah. You have no landlord. That's dope. Congrats again on that. Uh, that's definitely, definitely dope. And yeah, man, can't wait for the housewarming or whatever. We'll go invite the whole AOTA family. Just kidding. Probably don't want all those people. But um, yeah, man. I will take it. I will take it. I, I think we told people last time about uh, one, one of my neighbors who uh, is just racist and doesn't like black people. So I officially want to have the biggest AOTA, people of color, black people especially, party of all time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the AOTA family is super dope. I mean, it's just a lot of people. I don't know if you want that many people at the house, but that would, oh, that would be I an do. event. That would be I do. wonderful. I want I want lawn chairs on the front yard. <laughs> I want the barbecue <laughs> in the back. I want them to be like Negroes everywhere. <laughs> yes. Uh, everywhere. Yeah. Actually, that reminds me, this has nothing to do with what you just said, but uh, when you said Negroes everywhere, I have come to realize that it's a... It seems almost like a growing challenge among my students in my ethnic studies classes as we talk about marginalized populations. Um, you know, I use the term people of color here and there, and it's in a lot of their readings and, and materials, people of color, this and that. And so many students just like inherently shorten it to colored people. And I try to explain mm. to them how colored people, it, it, I, I see why that would make sense to them. They see people of color and, you know, their brain shortens it to colored people. Um, but trying to explain to them sort of the context of that term and how it's outdated and how, you know, if you're out here in these streets and you're talking about colored people, this, like, you know, folks in my generation are going to look at you kind of funny. And uh, it's an ongoing challenge. So I, I just think that because, as you say, Negroes, because I was telling them, like, you know, we, you know, just pointing out the change in uh, different vocabulary as we talk about different marginalized groups and how it's a ongoing struggle since race is a uh, construct and there's no real scientific basis, uh, ongoing struggle to find like the, you know, the right labels or, or what have you. So yes, I'm sure your racist neighbors who call the cops on you, they, they, they probably are of the right, of the variety to use the term Negro or colored people or the blacks. Perhaps no, I think they're I think they're with the blacks, the blacks, <laughs> the blacks. <laughs> uh, yeah, they know enough not to not to you know say anything embarrassing. They're just gonna yeah, call yeah. the cops, you know. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, oh man. All right. Well, passing period, and so as always, so much going on in our education system and school system. So many things that we could talk about. So many news items out there for us to discuss. And for this particular episode, Jeff, I believe we are going to start with something that we really haven't talked about. I don't know if we've ever talked about this on our years on all of the above. I don't think we have. At least no story comes to mind where we discuss this particular topic or issue. So so what we got for today's passing period, Jeff? Yeah, I you know I think you are probably right, Manuel. We have a fascinating story coming uh, out of right here in Los Angeles, um, which is the LA Unified uh, School Board um, came out with a really fascinating uh, resolution this week, uh, which was sponsored by the board uh, president uh, Kelly Gones. 
um, regarding green spaces and setting what I what I think, I guess I'm not an expert in like percentages of green space on school campuses, but what sounds to me from my just anecdotal experiences on many school campuses across the district uh, as a pretty ambitious goal to physically revolutionize uh, LAUSD school campuses and to do so with at least a little bit of an equity lens. Um, I don't say that as a knock. I just say they're going to be starting the work at the schools that have sort of the most concrete and the least green space. Um, I don't know how that tracks with student populations and communities across the district at all, but I can imagine that, you know, some of the lowest income, most otherwise, uh, you know, impacted by inequitable practices, schools might also be the places that have the least green space. Um, so that would be my hunch. But all that to say, uh, the board calls for all campuses across the district to have at least 30% green space by 2035. So obviously building green spaces, planting trees, you know, tearing up concrete and stuff like that is going to take a lot of time, money, tax base, etc. cetera. Uh, so there's going to be some work to come to get there. But I think actually this is like a sneaky sneakily uh, impactful resolution from the board in that it's not about adopting new curriculum or a new instructional you know, set of practices or test scores or whatever, but it's actually one of those things that could be highest leverage at impacting a lot of the other metrics that we care about. Uh, because we're talking about making schools more beautiful. We're talking about making schools more welcoming. We're talking about making schools uh, physically cooler in a city here like Los Angeles, where we just got over a second round of 100 degree days uh, in many parts of the district, where we have you know broken down air conditioners in classrooms, where you know kids are sitting and sweating it out all day, um, where we have situations, especially uh, in the valley uh, communities, where you know it's too hot to go outside and do PE or athletics on you know on certain days during the school year. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a real issue, right? Um, this is like a tangible connection between the effects, the exacerbating effects of climate change that we see and the real lived experience of young people going to school every day. So I actually really, really love this resolution. There's probably some like green space advocates out there that, that are like, it should have been 50%, you know, or whatever. And I'm like, Cool. I'm here for that too. But like, I will take this for now. <laughs> and it sounds good to me. Um, and uh, so let me share a couple of words. There's a, an article we're going to cite from by uh, NBCLosAngeles.com, uh, the local NBC affiliate. Uh, and this is a quote um, from board president Kelly Gomez, who said, for decades, our school district has built playgrounds almost entirely out of asphalt with no shade cover which only exacerbates extreme heat. Today, we are committing to transforming our campuses by bringing tree canopies, plants, and outdoor learning spaces for all our students to learn and play. Um, I, you know, again, I think there is, I, to me, this feels like a beautiful example of um, a policy effort that is about not only the narrow lens of academic achievement, but it's actually also about the experience of the people at a school site that actually leads to the academic achievement, right? So will green spaces fix poverty and community violence? Probably not all by itself. 
Will green spaces go a long way to helping young people feel like this is an institution that society cares about? Because look at how beautiful it is. We have planted trees. We have natural grasses and flowers growing. There are birds and bees and butterflies flying around our campus, right? This is a space that is welcoming, loving, affirming. It's hard to do that with asphalt and concrete. Uh, and so I love it. I think it's potentially transformative. Um, and some of our campuses that are super concrete-y and brick city-ish, uh, you feel the institutional nature of it um, when you're there and you go to other campuses where there's old growth trees and, you know, there's shade on the hot days and, you you know, it just makes such a difference, man. So yeah. I love it. I think this we need more thinking like this in terms of policy, you know, at the policy level in education. So I'm, I'm a huge fan, Manuel. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think this is one of those issues or this resolution in particular is kind of like, who would be against something like this? Because I, you know, obviously there's partisan bickering when it comes to anything around uh, climate policy and and things of that nature. But like 30% green space for schools and playgrounds and all that. I don't think that's it. Really, anything that somebody would complain about. Of course, you know, there might be folks asking about uh, money and where's the money going to come from. And of course. Not of course, I shouldn't say of course, but in this resolution, um, it does call for um, extra effort going into exploring options for funding to help create or help meet these goals. So it's, you know, it's not just totally ignoring the fact that it's going to cost probably some money for uh, campuses to do this. But in any case, yeah, this is a no brainer. I mean, the research showing that being outdoors and having access to green space and having actual shade and like you said, butterflies and trees and all that stuff um, does wonders for everybody, for everybody, uh, particularly kids. Like there's so much research to back the the value and importance of having access to um, the outdoors. And that's why it's such a ongoing, I guess, challenge to really talk about and do something about the fact that our history of segregated housing um, really, really lines up very well with what neighborhoods have a lot of green space and what neighborhoods don't. Like there's plenty of research out there that shows that red line neighborhoods tend to have far fewer trees per household and trees per um, resident than neighborhoods that have been historically white and, and what have you. So um, no brainer to try to make an effort to increase the amount of green space on playgrounds and on school campuses across Los Angeles. I definitely would like to learn more about what other school districts, you know, what the numbers are looking like in other school districts, because according to this, only 16% of campuses currently have that 30% um, threshold of green space. So I'm just kind of curious what other similar campuses, when I say similar, I mean Southern California type uh, school districts you know what it looks like there. I'm thinking about my district. I'm just I'm just curious what what our numbers are if we were to um, take a look at the amount of green space for for our young people. That heat wave from a couple weeks ago, man, it was like you know 100 degrees, 101, 102, and, and seeing on the news like reports about how kids weren't allowed out for a recess or or couldn't line up for class outside because the asphalt was too hot for them to be on. It's just a it's just that it's not a good look, man. It's not a good look when yeah. the freaking ground is too hot for kids to even line up for class or whatever. And obviously that's not going anywhere anytime soon with climate change going the way it's going. We're going to have 
longer heat waves and more intense heat waves each year. So obviously something has to be done about that. So yes, I'm very happy to see resolution to help focus some efforts on making sure that each campus has enough green space or has more green space. It is a resolution and you know, sometimes resolutions come and go. Sometimes resolutions are something to celebrate and feels good, sounds good. But um, if it doesn't have teeth, you know, 10 years from now, we'll look back and see if this if this did much, but resolutions are, of course, super helpful for those um, organizers and activists and uh, folks within the district to really go on with what they have been trying to do. I'm sure there's uh, folks across LAUSD who have been trying to uh, advocate for more green space and having a resolution there to show that the board approves of that and that the board says, yes, we need to do this. You know, that offers some backing to, to help in those efforts, of course. So uh, resolutions are important. However, they're not they're not legislation. They're not actual policy. So I'm hoping this is one that doesn't just, you know, get some applause right now and then kind of fade into the background. So we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. The um, a fascinating fact that was in the story here is that uh, district officials reported that only 16 percent of the campuses across the district currently meet the 30 percent goal. Yeah. Um, in the resolution. So that gives you some you know, some ability to have a bit of a mental picture. And I will say, in my experience, it's actually many of the elementary schools that perhaps have the most uh, room to grow or room for transformation on this front. And, you know, I don't say that as like necessarily a, a knock or a criticism, right? But the elementary schools tend to have large play yards, right? Um, immediately adjacent to the main, you know, buildings uh, part of campus. And, you know, in Los Angeles, grass is not something that's really, like, easily maintained and, like, the, the appropriate way to just do an open field the way it is, say, in many parts of the Midwest or the South, where, like, a, a lawn can be maintained with relatively little maintenance, right? Or, or it could be maintained just with natural rainfall for much of the year, for example. Here in LA, if you tried to make a giant play yard out of grass, it would be a patch of dirt in like a month, right? So, yeah. so I get it that like we don't just want a big dusty patch of dirt in the middle of a schoolyard <laughs> blowing dust everywhere and getting the kids all dirty every day, right? So we made asphalt or concrete play surfaces, and I get that. And many of them have no trees at all. So the only shade you get is like whatever's cast by the basketball hoop or the, the little handball walls that are up in certain parts of it or around the perimeter of the yard. Sometimes there's like those skinny cypress trees or that kind of thing. Yeah. So you might get a little bit of shade, you know, like two feet <laughs> shade coming down that you'll see people like lined up in that shade, uh, you know, at lunchtime or whatever sometimes. But um, I think it'd be really interesting to reimagine some of those, you know, wide open play yard spaces that we want to maintain because you want just big, flexible spaces where kids can play kickball and tag and soccer and just run, right, and have fun. And also we can make them beautiful and make them, you know, have some shade and cool them off a bit and, you know, and those sorts of things. And maybe we can still have recess, uh, you know, on campuses like that with a different design even if it's a very hot day in the future. So I'm hopeful, uh, especially for our youngest, uh, for our youngest students that, at least in my experience, might be the places yeah. that have, tend to have the least 
green space. Yeah, and of course, it's an extra added challenge now that California is facing its historic drought. And those of us who are homeowners, look at us, Jeff. Look at us, homeowners. <laughs> Um, uh, who have I lawns. Like that, I like that word, us, in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so, you know, there's all these new incentives now to rip up our lawns, uh, rip out the grass, because, it's, it, as you said, it, it takes a lot to maintain grass in the Southern California climate. The Southern California, California climate is very arid, and grass takes a lot of water. And most of the water use um, across California, but particularly in Southern California, I think something like 50%. I shouldn't throw out that number because I heard it yesterday and I don't remember it, so I could be wrong. Anyways, a whole lot of water use goes towards um, outdoor landscape. And when you're facing a drought, that's that's not a good look because we, we're going to need water to survive. We're going to need water to like actually drink. Um, so yeah, it, you know, it could be a challenge in boosting the amount of green space, but there are so many solutions out there for green space, for outdoor space um, that is environmentally fr environmentally friendly and using, um, you know, native plants and, and native uh, landscaping that doesn't require as much water. But also, 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 when I navigate through the Los Angeles area, when I'm using my GPS for anything, and if I have the satellite view on, it's amazing to me just how many massive golf courses we have across mm. Los Angeles County. Like so much, like if you just look at a satellite view of Los Angeles County, there's so much like wide open green space that's this country club, that country club, this. Uh, and I've, I wonder like, why do I, a tiny little homeowner have to rip up my grass when this massive sprawling golf course is located right, you know, not too far away and they've got grass all over that joint. And I'm told, or at least in the news, they report that um, they get waivers if they're using reclaimed water, recycled water, water that's not um, any good for our actual, you know, cooking, uh, drinking, consumption, whatever. So I don't know. I'm thinking we're probably going to need some help and some resources to help Los Angeles Unified be able to tap into whatever the hell these golf courses are doing because the kids deserve that wide open green space where they can roll around and play and do all that. And at a time when we're supposed to be cutting down on our water use, if these golf courses are finding a way to keep their wide open, super expensive green manicured lawns going then damn, the least we could do is make sure each elementary school, at least the elementary schools, but I, you know, obviously the, the middle and high schools have something other than blazing hot concrete that's like melting the bottom of your shoes. Yeah. You know, the, what's interesting, Manuel, is the district actually knows how to do this relatively well. Um, I work mm. with uh, a high school down at Watts, Jordan High School, that uh, you know relatively recently had a... Um, a renovation of a lot of the, you know, teardown and of older buildings and building new ones, and then a renovation of some of the like historic uh, monument parts of campus. Mm -hmm. And um, first of all, they rebuilt it with like white or lighter gray concrete instead of mostly the black asphalt. Yeah, and same then, for our school. Yeah, and then they have uh, so that you know in the hot LA days that we're talking about the difference between like being able to stand on it and not being able to stand on it, right? Right. And then um, they built these huge sort of uh, green spaces. I don't know what to call them, but um, like little boulevards inside the campus with tall grasses, with native trees, with aloe and agave plants and, you know, more drought tolerant stuff. And it's beautiful. Like it really does look nice. And so there's probably other, you know, design options and that kind of thing. But 
the, all this to say, they know how to do it, right? Already. Yeah. And it, could it be better? Probably. There's probably even more cool, innovative things, you know, that could be done or even less water intensive things that could be planted. But like, this can be done. It's just a matter of like will and resources. And so I love the the effort on this front and the prioritization. Like I, I think we really underestimate the value of beauty in in terms of, well, we do in certain cases, right? We do when it comes to like public schools. We don't when it comes to like a new wing at the airport, right? Everybody understands right. like, oh, wow, this LAX, the new terminal looks great, you know, or whatever. And of course, there's a lot of money spent on stuff that doesn't have function in the sense of like, it doesn't get you on your plane any faster. It doesn't get you through security any better, but it's nice to look at and it makes you feel good being in that space. Yeah. And it, we need to apply some of that same logic, you know, that we expect at airports and shopping malls and what, you know, other kinds of public spaces to our public schools. Our kids deserve and our educators deserve beautiful spaces that look like this is a place we really care about. Absolutely. Like when I when I've gone to SoFi Stadium, I don't know if you've had a chance to go to SoFi for anything mm -hmm. yet, Jeff, but that place, that stadium is freaking beautiful. And it just seems so into for for a massive corporate freaking football stadium. It just seems so in tune with its surrounds and like the lighting is the natural light coming through. It just feels so good. And it's just such a, like, it just feels good being there. Even though I can't stand the Los Angeles Rams, it just feels good being there at the stadium. And it's like, yeah, why can't each school campus have that, that feel of like all this natural light, all this open space, um, not needing a whole lot of, of, uh, artificial like HVAC, not needing a whole lot of the AC or whatever, because it's, it's designed in such a way to capitalize on the natural environment around it to help with the cooling. So you're not having to blast the AC. Like in my classroom, we have to blast the AC just to survive. And, you know, our us district teachers don't even have control over the AC. It's controlled by the district. So all I could do is influence it, but I can't like turn it on or off. But anyways, that thing is blasting because otherwise that room gets so hot so fast because these buildings were constructed in like the 1920s and they were not made with climate change in mind at all. Whereas really modern spaces, really modern, uh, like, like you mentioned, modern terminals at airports often are designed and created with... <laughs> with nature in mind and efficiency in mind. And it just feels feels nice being around there. And shouldn't our kids feel good in the physical space of a school building? That's before we even get to curriculum and teachers and all that. But like, you should be able to walk in and feel good about the space and not feel like you're walking into just an institution, a concrete jungle, which is the feel on many campuses, whether they're, you know, quote unquote, good schools or not, it still feels like a concrete jungle in, in too many spaces, at least out here on the West Coast. And, you know, y'all East Coast folks definitely chime in and let us know what the general vibe is around your campuses. I know you got a whole different set of environmental factors to consider with uh, blizzards and, and freezing sub-zero temperatures and all that stuff. So, you know, a little different circumstances out here, but whole lot of concrete, whole lot of asphalt. And that, that lighter concrete that you mentioned, you know, we, our, our newly renovated part of campus uses that instead of the black asphalt. And it looks way better, except when the sun is shining, man. When you walk out yeah, the it's building, bright. it's like, it's <laughs> blinding. It's so freaking bright because the trees yeah. haven't grown enough yet. Like we have new landscaping and stuff. And there, you know, there's still baby trees and all that. And I'm like, I need y'all to hurry up and grow because it is blinding yeah. out here. 
Yeah, you do need a good pair of sunglasses. Uh, yeah, man, <laughs> to, to go with those campuses, I will say. But hey, man, it's it's. I think it's worth it. So yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah. Anyways, all right, Jeff. Sounds like everything's good in education. I guess we solved everything because more green space, thirty percent green space by twenty thirty five. I think that's the pretty much the last issue we had in education, right? Teachers are feeling good. Teachers are vibing. Nothing to see there, right? Um, this is the this is the last episode of all of the above. We are we're here to say that uh, we've solved all the problems. Solved and, it. Um, you know now Done. we're gonna we're gonna yeah we're just gonna retire. We're <laughs> it's been it's been real, folks. Uh, no, we uh, sadly meant well, uh, but also maybe happily. I don't know since we're a show <laughs> that just talks about uh, things that need to be talked about in, in education. Uh, we have we are nowhere near the end of these conversations, um, but we we do want to like pivot a little bit from a story there about green space and and envisioning what school could be and uh you know creating spaces that are loving and welcoming and beautiful for kids and educators to a story coming to us from uh, a small college you may or may not have heard of manuel i believe it's called the um, university of california at los angeles um, um close close uh, the at actually you think the at should be there but it's not it's just the university of california Los Angeles, and it is. Oh, is that real? It is okay. yet again, yet again for the I don't know how many consecutive years ranked the number one public university in the world by U.S. News and World Report, whose rankings are very, very problematic. However, we'll take that number one, UCLA, number one public <laughs> institution, and uh, yeah, yeah, um, I have heard of them, Jeff. I have heard of them. Yes. Uh, so they published a fascinating. Um, uh, I guess you would call it a study, uh, fascinating report, uh, probably a better uh, term, this week titled Voices from the Classroom, Developing a Strategy for Teacher Retention and Recruitment. Um, and they, in this report, they revealed some really interesting findings about how teachers uh, and also especially teachers of color are experiencing the profession currently. And I think we're all generally familiar with the fact that A, there's a giant teacher shortage, B, educators are super stressed and there's fear about people leaving the profession or retiring early or finding new careers or you know, joining the great resignation or whatever it may be. Um, and then you know, C, there's sort of this issue of like educators being under attack nationally that we've talked a lot about, uh, especially in, you know, let's say over the last year and a half or so since the real formalized weaponization around CRT and other kinds of things have come with like actual physical attacks or more emotional attacks or political attacks against educators generally. So all of that stew is, uh, is brewing, cooking, simmering away in our country. And then UCLA did this survey. So we're going to jump into some of the, the findings here. Uh, so at, in this survey, which they um, interacted with more than 4,600 current teachers in California, uh, found that while teachers enter the profession to help students and make a difference, many teachers today are feeling acute levels of stress job dissatisfaction, and are considering leaving the profession. The findings underscore significant challenges to teacher retention and the recruitment and preparation of aspiring teachers, especially teachers of color. So I uh, want to share a couple of statistical highlights here. 
Um, there were there was questions asked about word association with the profession, and uh, large numbers of teachers chose words like exhausting. Sixty eight percent said that stressful. Sixty one percent overwhelming. Fifty one percent. Um, and if you compare that to more positive terms like rewarding, 34% said that, uh, enjoyable, 22% said that, empowering, 14% said that. So some pretty stark uh, juxtapositions there in terms of uh, what people are, the, the words and feelings people are associating with the job. Um, huge potential concerns around teacher retention, uh, 20% saying they will probably or definitely leave the profession in the next three years. 57% saying burnout uh, is the top reason that they will uh, leave the profession. Political attacks coming in second on that list at 40%. Um, of course, low pay and other kinds of things also um, influencing that. And, um, you know, 88% of teachers identified better pay as the top priority that state and local officials should prioritize in order to improve teacher retention, followed by smaller class sizes, stronger discipline policies for students who behave disrupt disruptively, better staffing, and more manageable workload. So um, in some ways, Manuel, I found this data to be not at all surprising and confirming of things that we have seen in some other reports and or just kind of know and sense uh, anecdotally from our work uh, with, you know, from your work as a teacher and from our work with, you know, interacting with lots of other teachers. Um, and so that is both uh, oddly comforting and then like, oh, we're not crazy. It's, it's real. And also... Like, I think that we should be hearing more about this on, like, the nightly news or something. Right? Like, yeah. society uh, doesn't function without schools. Uh, schools educate the children. We also supervise the kids all day long. So, as anyone who's ever been in a district or a state knows, where there's been a strike anytime recently, when the schools ain't open, you can't go to work. Because <laughs> who's going to be home watching the kids, right? So, like, this is a critical pillar of society on just its basic day-to-day -day functioning, let alone the loftier ideas we have about being a democracy someday, about uh, wanting to help young people grow and develop and thrive and build their talents, about training people to do the next, you know, generation of important work that we need done painters and doctors and, you know, uh, carpenters and et cetera, yeah. right? Uh, so, like, the fact that there's these canaries in the mine shaft chirping and or, or what's the, maybe the analogy is, like, no longer chirping, <laughs> falling over uh, and telling us, like, hey, something is toxic here we should be reacting to, and this should be a big national story in my mind. And it like sort of is in academic spaces, but not in the sense of like, you know, uh, and just the, the sort yeah. of mainstream public discourse. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I think it's a big story among teachers, among folks like ourselves, among, you know, shows and online spaces, um, such as all the above and the AOTA family, but it's not a big story outside of that, certainly. And that's, 
That's very troubling because I, I think there's this social, like just across society, there's this assumption that like, yeah, teaching is hard, but they love it. They're doing it for service. And, you know, teachers will always be there. Like it's, it's bad, but they're, you mm-hmm. know, they're, they're always going to be there. Like there's, there's just an assumption that it's going to hold. And then there are folks out there who are hoping that it breaks, hoping that the public school system, as we know, it falls apart because they want, you know, open, full, what they're, they're calling it now, quote unquote, universal school choice to make it sound nice. They want uh, an end to uh, a public education system as we now know it and to allow their folks to be indoctrinated at uh, particular partisan schools, political schools, religious schools, and this and things of that nature. So like, there's open attacks against it. The economy is really not set up in a very helpful way right now uh, for teachers. It, part of the report, they're asking teachers about the difficulty of housing and, and saving money. And 80% of respondents said it's very difficult to find affordable housing near where they teach. And 75% said it's difficult to save for goals like purchasing a home. So it's so tough economically. It's so tough socially with these political attacks on curriculum, this banning of books and all that. And it's just, it's so much to bear, especially coming out of a pandemic. So on the one hand, Jeff, part of me thinks like, well, when you and I got our teacher credential, like even back then they were saying like, oh, you have the teachers quit within the first five years or something like they were taught. Like, I remember that statistic being floated out there, whether it's true or not, that half of uh, folks who enter the profession quit before the first five years. That's been going around since the early 2000s. So on the one hand, it's like, okay, well, this has always been difficult work. This has always been a tough profession. And Folks, is, folks have always, you know, stepped away from the classroom, but it's certainly worse now. And this data here shows it. Like these are a lot of teachers that they surveyed here. A t- lot of teachers who are saying like, "Yo, this is not sustainable." Like fifty-seven percent of the folks who said like, chances are fifty-fifty or higher that they're going to leave within the next three years. Fifty-seven percent said it's because of burnout. And I, as a classroom teacher, when I think about Obviously, all the things that we've discussed on the show for years about not having enough time um, to adequately prepare lessons and assess and give feedback and do all the things that we're supposed to do, but also the added more recent challenge of having to cover other people's classes. Like I thought that was confined to last school year with the Omicron surge and folks being out, but this school year already, I've been covering classes and my department has missed a, a few of our department meetings because too many of us were having to cover other people's classes. And it's not during a surge, like certainly the pandemic's not over, but this is not related to any kind of surge. This is appears to just be the new normal, which just adds to more burnout. So it's uh, it should be something that's discussed outside of just the academic education teacher professional space where it is discussed. This is something that should be on the news. And of these teachers who are surveyed, and these are California teachers who are surveyed here, 40%, 40% said that you know they're likely to leave over the next three years because of political and ideological attacks on the profession. 40%, like I was pretty surprised by that because, you know, I know California is not this, you know, liberal progressive haven for folks. I know that. I'm very well aware of that. We talked about on this on the show how certain pockets of California in particular are still incredibly conservative and it's not easy to be a teacher who values inclusivity, values um teaching students about the legacy of race and racism and helping them interrogate these systems of oppression. Like it's really hard to do that in certain parts of California, but I was surprised to see that uh, at least in this survey among the teachers who said their 50-50 or greater chance of leaving the profession soon, 40% said that political and ideological attacks are a top reason why they would do that. So if those are the numbers in California, 
what about those Oklahoma teachers? What about those Texas teachers? What about those Florida teachers? I could only imagine it's even worse. So that is a part that kind of surprised me that it's that high in California. And I think that does not bode well for the profession nationally. So yeah, a lot, a lot of a lot of data here that kind of confirms what we already suspected, but some elements of it that to me show that it, in some ways it might be worse in certain areas than I thought it would be. So for my fellow classroom teachers out there, man, in a lot of ways, like we all we got. And I, I don't even know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. I ain't the type to tell anybody to stay in, stay in a job where um, you're burning out and it's, it's taking away from your quality of life. Like I ain't the type to tell you to just endure it grits, just stick with it. Like, I, I can't tell you that, but I can tell you um, we all we got and we got to help each other out to the extent possible. And that means advocacy. That means speaking up for what we need, uh, of course, compensation. Um, but above that, speaking up for having protections around our prep time so that we don't have to cover classes as much as we're covering classes in certain cases, having just this, all, all of the things that we know would help teachers feel better and do better in the profession. All the things that we know would help support schools and support schooling and support our quest for fuller democracy here. We just, we gotta speak up for those and we gotta keep advocating because there's no way, like I saw a headline this week that the LAPD, the Los Angeles Police Department, just opened up a program, started a program that's going to give $24,000 in rent incentives to new recruits. So they're trying to recruit. They got a shortage, I guess, in the LAPD. And they got this program where if you join the LAPD, they're going to help subsidize your rent because the cost of housing, of course, is through the roof. So I'm like, well, damn, why don't we have that for LAUSD teachers? And, you know, not just LAUSD. I'm just comparing them because LAPD, whatever. But like, why, how, why, why does a Los Angeles police officer get this $1,000 incentive month month by month for 24 months to help offset the cost of housing if they uh, join the LAPD. But we don't have something similar for teachers. Like that's a no brainer. Like, come on, man. How come they're able to do this stuff and we're over here just struggling and floundering and burning out? So we got to speak up and I don't know, man. I, I love being in the classroom. I'm loving the school year personally, but man, I had to endure 19 years to get to where I'm at now in terms of just the things I'm able to do and the things I'm able to earn actually on the salary scale after 19 years and, and all the education masters and doctorate and all that stuff. And it's just like, well, damn, I don't know what the newer teachers are going to do because the economy is set up way, way not good for the young folks out there. So yeah, man. Yeah. Way not good. That's uh, that about way not that about good. sums it up. Uh, <laughs> That's from the number one public university <laughs> in the nation. That's where I went. Hashtag, way not hashtag, good. Uh, go go Bruins. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I guess what it makes me think about Manuel is, in as much as what I'm about to say can be a dangerous line of thought to go down, right? Uh, but uh -huh. let's take a page from our good uh, capitalist brothers and sisters uh, at say like Google, right? Now, let's say Google was like, oh, my God, we have a shortage of engineers. And I'm, you know, forgive my lack of technical expertise, but I'm just going to assume for the moment that a company like Google needs not only lots and lots and lots of engineers, but like really good engineers to make Google work. Right. So your searches are fast and efficient and you find exactly what you want and not some spam site, you know, that's trying to take your money. And so that you can find your Google Docs and your Google Forms and your Google Sheets and it all works seamlessly right. across your organization or whatever. Right. Um, so I can imagine if Google was like, hey, we're losing all the good engineers to 
other companies, right? They're going to Microsoft or they're going to Cisco or whatever it is. Uh, and, you know, or they're leaving this country and they're going to, you know, China or India or other hubs around the world, uh, you know, to do work. What are they going to do? You know for sure. They're not going to sit around and be like, well, how about we, uh, you know, we have a mentoring program. So when, <laughs> when people start as an engineer at our company, they get another engineer who's going to like, you know, help them suffer through effectively these really, really difficult work conditions. That's not going to be <laughs> what they're going to do. Right. They're going to be like, oh, well, how much are those guys paying? We'll beat it by 10% or whatever, right? We'll give a bonus for this. We'll give unlimited vacation days. We'll have free lunch in a, you know, in a beautiful cafe uh, that anyone can come and get whatever they want every day. We'll give you free Ubers to and from work uh, whenever, you, you know, whenever you need. We'll have a gym. At the workplace, that's nice and fresh, and you don't have to pay to go to whatever you know gym you would get on your own membership, right? We are gonna, um, you know, we're gonna have nice parties for the staff to, to to take care of you. We're gonna have you know giveaways. We're gonna have um, employee stock options that everyone gets. You know, there's gonna be incentives to actually try to make both work conditions substantively better and. The economic incentives encourage people to stay. Now, I get that the, on the other side of that coin is like sweatshop labor and all these other things. So stipulated point. Don't don't come at me. I'm just using this to make a point. But uh, why don't we think similarly about teachers and about education? What are the work conditions that people need to thrive in the role? And what are the financial uh, you know arrangements people need to actually be able to sustainably do the job. And we are very far off the mark. I'm sad to say, I think in many, many places, especially in schools and districts that serve you know, the most marginalized communities. And we, we operate on a system that essentially runs with the you know, sort of benevolence, relies upon the benevolence and goodwill of particularly committed educators. And that system is starting to fray at the edges and, and you know, risks coming apart because we have not been willing to actually pay people what they're worth and create sustainable work conditions for people. Yep. You heard it here, folks. Super duper principal leader man Jeffrey Garrett says we need more capitalism in our public school system because <laughs> what the hell? How are we going to sustain ourselves otherwise? That was exactly my point. No, nah, man. Yes. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty yes. much. Yeah, man. We got to amp up the advocacy. We got to amp up the fight, man, because um, our kids deserve it. The students deserve the, the students deserve teachers who are able to do their job to the best of their ability because they're not burnt out, because they're not juggling a million things all at once and because they're not facing political attacks and because they're not having a struggle to survive financially. Students deserve teachers who are in a healthy enough place financially, socially, personally, um, professionally, all these different ways to really do their damn thing and educate and help build up our new generation, our newest, youngest generation of young learners. So I, I don't know what to say besides we got to amp up the fight, amp up the advocacy, because to just point, man, there's no reason why Google and all these tech firms, all these other like private firms are able to do all these wonderful things to attract and sustain a strong workforce and our public education system, far more important in my humble opinion than all those other uh, firms can't 
do anything close to that. Like there's no, there's no reason why we should be here struggling the way we are when everybody, everybody benefits from a robust public education system, whether you have children or not. Society benefits major and we got to fight for this because it's not a big enough story. It's just not a big enough story and it definitely needs to be. All right, Jeff, well, we're gonna build up some green space and hopefully there's some teachers left to help usher the kids out to the green space during recess. We shall see. Time will tell. Anything else before we get up out of here? Nah, man. Uh, I I actually might go outside and uh, sit in some of my own green space uh, this afternoon, uh, (laughs) which is going to be nice. It is not too hot here in uh, in Southern California. And uh, enjoy not paying rent today. Hey, man, you earned it. You earned it. And also, you know, we started the show by just reminding folks a little bit about who we are, because some of you, you know, maybe are more recent to all the above. And we've been on these passing periods for a while, and we've never really treated these like full episodes uh, in that sense. But something that struck me this time, Jeff, when you gave your paragraph explaining what super duper dope principal leader man um, is and does, is that you were a teacher of social science and, and you taught government and then you enter the admin role. And I believe we could probably draw something of a straight line towards between you not teaching government anymore and our government, as we know it, essentially falling apart. I think we could draw a straight line between you walking out of the classroom and the January 6th attack on the Capitol, Jeff. Uh, we have generations of folks out here not knowing not knowing how um, our representative democracy is supposed to function. And you could have been in the classroom Although I guess the folks you're you're teaching in the Bronx weren't weren't quite the same demographic that we saw <laughs> January six, but still slight, there might be some correlation there. Yes, slight. Yeah, yes. man. In, in um, the spirit of uh, being a good government teacher, Manuel, on, uh, when it comes to that um, allegation, I plead the fifth. Oh, there we go. That's some government my, stuff my right there. That's some civics for you right there. Has advised me to assert my Fifth Amendment rights. Yes. Nice, nice. I, I actually, this is my first year not teaching government in a very long time, and um, I don't know. It kind of feels a little, little weird. I don't know because we have an election coming up. I don't know if y'all been paying attention, folks. But uh, midterms are coming up, and I'm not actually talking about them a whole lot in class like I normally would because I don't have government this year. But that's neither here nor there. This is all of the above. This has been all of the above passing period. Um, Jeff's Mister Super Dope. Principal Leader Man, and I'm your humble classroom teacher, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. And we appreciate y'all sticking around with us this time around. Please, if you have not already rated and reviewed us and all that good stuff, we would very much appreciate it because that goes a long way to help us grow the show and, and get out to, to a, a bigger audience. So thank you so much for being here with us. Remember, we love y'all. And now it's time for you to go ahead and get to class.